Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Numbers 14. I'm actually going to finish up the main point of what I wanted to get to last week, but we ran out of time. Um, I would hope that with the notes that I am handing out, you are taking those throughout the week and spending time with the Lord in the Word, grasping the important points we're trying to point out as we move forward to who Jesus is and what He's done. I want to go over the foundational truths in your notes. If We can do that before we jump into Numbers 14. And the reason why I want to do that especially is because we've added two more foundational truths that we've found in Scripture that we've uncovered as we move forward. So the first one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. And let me say something about this real quick. The Bible is not just inerrant. It's not just free of error. It's not just infallible, free of falsehood. It is also sufficient. The more and more listening that I do, who's talking about what online? What's this preacher got to say? Well, this new book that came out, they're espousing this and that. It's amazing to find so many people are running away from how sufficient God's Word is. And I'm highly disturbed by it. Um, it testifies to itself of what it's able to do. And I think that you and I would both agree that we've seen the Word do that work in our own lives. And also in those that we've been able to share the Word with, has changed them as well. I can't think of anything else on the face of the earth that has had the impact that the Bible has had. And so it's very interesting to see people are running from this idea that it's sufficient. I don't understand it. I mean, I do understand it. It's sinful and dirty and nasty and the devil's behind it. And boo, right? But I mean, let's be honest, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, it kind of makes you wonder sometimes when you see Christians running the other direction and looking to trust in every other thing except simply what the word of God has. Number two, God is eternal. He's always been. He is the sovereign creator, which means he has the right to rule is the idea. He is a ruler by nature. He is over all things. He is the creator. We are the creatures. And all that he creates is good. And the reason why he does that is because it is completely consistent with his character. We are responsible agents and we are held to a moral standard. And that is the standard that God sets. He is in control. When it boils down and every person is going to be judged at some time, the only criteria that is going to matter is what God has esteemed as most important. That's it. Nothing else. What everybody else thought about a situation will fade away really quickly. Peer pressure will not exist in heaven. It's very interesting. So notice here, God, I apologize, back up one, sin originates within a person separating us from God. Sin is everywhere. We have it right now. Some of you are probably thinking, I wonder how long he's going to preach. That's sinful. <laughs> See how that works? I love it. I love it. I don't think any less of you because I don't know who you are, right? If I knew who you were, I would be in sin. Uh, so notice that. But the problem with sin is it infects everything. In fact, sin is so powerful that the only thing that is more powerful than sin is God's grace. That's the only thing that is greater than sin. And God takes sin seriously. So much that He's brought death and blood into the picture in order to decisively deal with it. Pretty serious. 
So notice, it originates within us. It separates us from God. We are to blame. But the next one, God declares one righteous, and that's what we want. How can someone be made right with God in His sight? Only one way and one way only, and that's by faith. Here's the reason why. If you're broken when you come to this conclusion that you need to be made right with God, how dangerous is it to think that in that brokenness you can bring something to the situation of which God should look favorably on you? You see what I'm saying? You're already tainted before you get there. So how in the world can we muster something of the perfection that God demands when we stand in His presence? It's impossible. Obviously, we need the righteousness of another, a righteousness like God's, which is found only in Jesus. So it's completely apart from works. But here are two new ones. The glory of God is the centerpiece and goal of all existence. It's not salvation. Salvation is good grief important. It is. But salvation is a means unto the end of God receiving glory. That is where history is going. If you, if you ever want to you know, mess with somebody, where do you think history is going? And just listen to what the world has to say. Because here's what you find. They're going to bring politics into it. They're going to bring how we need to be better people into it. You know, or, or some people are just going to throw it up and say, whatever, man. Right? But we know. We know that in the end, God will be glorified. And everything that happens in this world, he is able to use in order to direct it towards the end of his glory. No one can sin enough to get God's glory off track. You can't derail that train. It's impossible. But the last one here, God's glory is maximally, and I looked that up, it is a word, maximally realized in the promised coming kingdom. Now let me say something about that real quick before we move forward. There are two dangerous views about the kingdom. The first dangerous view is one that has been around for, for quite a while, and it's the idea that we're really not talking about a kingdom at all. What we're talking about is all the promises that were made to Israel in the Old Testament. Well, that's kind of been glossed over and softened over, and they were just so rebellious, God just didn't want to hold on to them anymore, and eh, get out of my face kind of thing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take those promises that are literal earthly promises and we are going to bring them over here to this thing called the church and we're going to spiritually set them down on top of the church and that's how they're going to be fulfilled. Does anybody know what that's called? It's called replacement theology, but I call it heresy. Okay, that's what I call it. Because what you've done essentially is you're saying... Well, the way that God communicated it, I can't consistently understand it for simply what it says. I've got to manipulate it. I've got to add to it. I've got to allegorize it. And then I've got to bring some people into the mix that weren't even around to be consistent with this promise. That's dangerous. That's dangerous to all the gymnastics that you have to do to make something like that try to make sense. It simply doesn't. The other problem that we're dealing with right now is heavy heavy in what we would probably call more millennial-minded churches. And the millennial-minded churches, by and large, have abandoned the inerrancy of Scripture. It's helpful, it's useful, uh, especially some that want to subscribe to, um, I don't remember if it's Greek Orthodox or what it is, but I can also find truth in 
relics and signs and icons and things like that. And they're into this like higher spirituality. Um, but they also have this view of the kingdom that's already here. It's already here now, but it's not yet here. It's here spiritually, but it's not here physically. Well, right now, we're living in the kingdom in a spiritual sense. And they will equate the idea of what it is to walk with the Spirit, to walk with Christ, to walk in fellowship, to, to, to be filled with the Spirit. All of those things are the same thing, to be walking in the new life of Christ. And they will equate it with this idea of they're starting to live out the kingdom in their lives. And when you hear people talk about they're doing things to build the kingdom, we may look at that and gloss over it. I tell you this, that gets my goat every time. And I hope I'm using that phrase right. But it, it drives me crazy. Because when I look at Scripture, what the literal plain understanding of Scripture says is, is I'm not building anything. Jesus builds His kingdom. He builds His church. He builds His kingdom. And there is a decisive day. I think this is, understand, I think this is so important to understand. There is a decisive day when the Scriptures tells us, in at least two, if not three places, where Jesus is going to rip through the sky, I cannot wrap my mind around that. I mean, we're sitting out here looking at it right now, and all we think is, I wish it wouldn't snow, right? But imagine the sky rolling up, and there is Jesus coming back. And when He comes back, all opposition against his plan and purposes is that time will be dealt with. And what's amazing is, is he doesn't have to make a bomb and he doesn't have to use a gun and he's not going to stab anybody. He's not going to blackmail anybody. He's simply going to speak and people die. Why is that? Because everything that proceeds out of his mouth is true. I don't know about you, but that's power. What I think is amazing is, is we get to be there when this happens. Right? He comes back, and he's got people clothed in white on horses behind him. And you know what I love about it? We don't do anything. Jesus isn't like, hey, Jeremy, I need you to take care of that guy over there. He doesn't do that. What's my job? That's my job. My job is to cheer and say, thank you, Jesus, that everything you ever told me, as plain as day in your word, is coming to be right in front of my eyes. You are going to establish your kingdom physically, politically, on earth. You will sit as the rightful heir to Israel on the throne of David, you will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And what we're going to talk about today, and if Christians have been faithful in their Christian lives, they will have responsibilities of ruling and reigning alongside Him in His divine administration. We're going to talk about what it is today to receive an inheritance. God will be glorified. He will be glorified by the establishment of the kingdom where His Son will make all of His enemies His footstool. And when that 1,000 year time period is over, Satan is let loose, and he is decisively dealt with at that time and cast into the lake of fire, 
the Lord Jesus is going to turn around and hand all rulership over to his Father, and they will reign together for eternity. No more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more problems, no more complications, no more itches. I mean, not just the big things, little things, man. Right? The middle of your back, you just can't get it. Mosquitoes. I mean, let's be honest. We might be upset about this. No mosquitoes going around right now. Praise the Lord. So, everybody's having a praise. Preach it. Preach it. See somebody's hankies come up, start hanky waving. So, with our Bibles turned to Numbers 14, the situation that we left off with that was so painful was the idea of sending the spies into the land, coming back with a report that was good and bad. Yes, it's exactly like God told us. There's giants in the land, and the cities that they live in are thick. And remember, Caleb stands up in the midst of all of this grumbling and opposition, and everybody just got real down real quick, and he said, Stop! We can do it! The Lord's given it to us. Let us at once go in and take the land. God is able. God fights for us. He is the warrior. We are simply to obey where he leads. Remember, their solution was, let's stone this guy so he won't talk anymore, was the idea. So now Moses is interceded on behalf of the people so the Lord won't wipe them out. And what we're going to pick up at is actually in verse 27 of chapter 14. This is Yahweh speaking. He says, how long shall I bear with this, what's it say, church? Evil congregation. He just called Israel an evil congregation. Now, if you know your Old Testament, that doesn't surprise you, does it? Because you see the problems they have from this point on to the end. How many times do we read? They are a stiff-necked people. They are a stubborn people. Over and over. They just won't listen. They just won't trust. They just won't obey. They've always got to worship something else besides Yahweh himself. Notice, they're an evil congregation who are grumbling against me. I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says Yahweh, just as you have spoken in my hearing, I will surely do to you. Now, just real quick. For those of you that like the Deuteronomy class, here you go. From verses 29, and if you search it down, doo, 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 let me see if I can find it. Um, I don't know. We will find it. It's the beginning of a chiasm for you guys. You guys are all into chiasms. Oh, from 32. From 29 to 32, there's a chiasm there. If you don't know what that is, come to Sunday school. Okay? But notice what it says here. Verse 29, your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Everyone 20 and older will die. That's the judgment. That's the judgment because of their unbelief and their rebellion. He says here, verse 30, Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, I love this, except... Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Why? Because faithfulness in holding to the promises of God when it's all said and done is what matters. Now do me a favor. You may have to turn back or just look back a little bit. Go back to where we saw about Caleb. 
Go back to where it says, verse 24. And, and I tell you what, if you don't remember anything else from today, remember this, because this is how we need to be found before the Lord. Notice what he says. Yahweh says this about Caleb, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me, how? Fully. Hold nothing back. Trust the Lord with all of it. I will bring him into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. In other words, faithfulness is what gains the inheritance. Unfaithfulness costs you the inheritance. Now notice, we're not even talking about the church yet. We're simply talking about Israel's situation. And let's keep this in mind. Everything that in real life, real time, historically happens with Israel is painting in a physical nature spiritual truths for the church. So there's an inheritance for the church to gain as well. Does anybody want to guess how you get that inheritance? Faithfulness. Following God fully. I'll show you how that works. Let's continue on and then we'll move there. Now notice this, verse 31. Your children, however, everyone 19 and younger is the idea, your children, however, whom you said would become prey. Now, everybody remember that? That was one of their excuses. We can't go in here. If we do, they'll get our children. Be careful using your children as an excuse before the Lord. I think that's really important. Now, I'm not saying anything anybody in particular. I don't know of anybody in this room that this is true, but I'll go ahead and say it. There are a lot of people who actually listen online. Maybe this will help them as well. But this is important. Your children do not run your house. If your children do run your house, somebody stole your pants. I think that's important. The Bible is extremely clear. The family is run by the mother and the father. They are a united front. I love it. I love it. When my son is sitting there and he says something to me, I'm like, no, buddy, you can't do that. And then he looks over at my wife and goes, ah, 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 like that to her. And she goes, and I love it. She looks at him and goes, did you hear what your dad said? And she'll go, Nathaniel, we are a united front. And I just want to start running the halls at that moment going, praise God. Because children are sinners. And they want to get in there and divide and manipulate and play one another, even at two years old. And I love it that she's like, no, we stand together. I'll hear them upstairs doing something and, you know, like, Nathaniel, listen to your mom. If she tells you to jump out the window, you jump. <laughs> I don't care. Do whatever she says. Because I can have that trust with her. We are united together against evil and cuteness running around our house. <laughs> Never use your children as an excuse not to obey the Lord. Well, he's only two. Yes! And he sins like a 20-year-old. <laughs> Raise him according to the admonition and instruction of the Lord, and when he is older, he will not depart from it. Take the decisive steps now and come to the agreement in your marriage. We are united in this. That's how God wants it. So notice, remember when you guys put up your children, verse 31, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in. Now, does anybody know why that hurts real bad? Who's bringing them into the promised land? 
God is. Now let me ask you a question. Wasn't God going to bring everybody into the promised land? Notice that didn't change. It's now mom and dad aren't included. You're going to have to pass away and your children are going to get what you should have had. You should have been leading that, them in that direction because you were following me in that direction. That's no different for how a house runs. The children follow the parents and the parents follow the Lord. Period. Done. It's real easy. We don't like it being that easy because it doesn't leave much squeaky wiggle room for other things to happen. It's real simple. Notice the next part here. I will bring them in and they will know the land you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness and they will suffer for your, what's your say? Unfaithfulness. Does anybody have the word fornication there? What's it say? Oredoms? Oh, whoredoms. Man, bringing the whore word in there. That's pretty rough. We can say that, right? Okay, I think all the legalists stayed at home today, so we're good, right? That's good. But no, seriously, think about it. This is how Yahweh is equating their unfaithfulness. It's like Israel has committed adultery in their relationship. That's an excellent translation. King James, there you go. Yeah. They'll have to bear the consequences because of your adultery, is the idea. Pretty serious, isn't it? You think Yahweh's taking this seriously? Oh, absolutely. So notice this. They'll have to suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days for every day you shall bear your guilt. A year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition in other words Yahweh saying I'm going to use this opportunity to teach your kids a lesson sin equals death doesn't change it doesn't change now when we're looking at the Bible there are actually two types of inheritance and all this is in your notes but I just want to give you a brief Maybe if I can pique your curiosity enough, you'll be like, i got to get in these notes. And you don't have as many pages as you've had in the past few weeks, which is good. I only did six pages this time. So, there are two types of inheritance. As, as is anything you read in the Bible, context always determines meaning. In September, we are having a hermeneutics class that we're going to start. You need to come to the hermeneutics class. And one thing you are constantly going to hear every time, context determines the meaning. With the first type of inheritance for Israel, Yahweh is their inheritance. They are what they get by being in relationship with Him. They didn't do anything to earn it. It's completely unconditional in nature. However, the second inheritance that is available, context determines meaning, is when there is a requirement for them. When there's a requirement for them to come to this. Actually, here it is. Excellent. Man, Mitch, that looks good. That looks way better than what's in your handout. Man, now I didn't come up with this chart. Uh, this is a chart by a guy named James S. Hollinsworth. We actually have some of his books in the library. I encourage you, if you have the opportunity, read them. They're challenging. Uh, they'll make you not like some things. Uh, but that's because you're under conviction, not because you don't agree with them. It's things that you have to pray about and think through. But the first type of inheritance is unconditional. It's guaranteed. 
In fact, this is for the church. Let me, let me do the Israel first, and then we'll talk about the church. Israel's inheritance is the land. It's an earthly promise that's been made. And because the covenant that was made with them at Sinai is a conditional one, if you will obey me, if you will keep my statutes, if you will hold fast to my word, I will then protect you and bless you and bring you into the land which will be an everlasting inheritance. It's conditional. The first generation fails miserably. They don't do well at all. Therefore, they don't receive the inheritance and they are wandering around in the wilderness until the judgment passes on them for 40 years and then their kids can rise up and now be brought to the same place of being ready to inherit the land. For the church, the inheritance that we receive as an unconditional inheritance is eternal life. That's something that is just freely given to you at the moment that you believe in Christ. It is guaranteed Every person gets it. Nobody is left out. It is based on the position in Christ as heirs of God, and we're going to look at that in just a second. When you believe in Christ, you are now in a position of righteousness. You are in Christ. But also, that inheritance is equal to the idea of eternal life. Now, the second type of inheritance for the believer, and remember, everything that goes on historically with Israel foreshadows a spiritual truth for the church to play out. Are Israel and the church the same? Absolutely not. Two separate programs. But that doesn't mean that God didn't use one as an object lesson in order to teach us the tenets of another. That's important. So, the conditional inheritance is not guaranteed. Even though you made it here due to the snow, and even though I call you faithful, it scares me to death as the pastor of this church that any one of you, here or not, would not gain this inheritance. Because it is an inheritance that is gained by works done in faith. Understand, it's not you're saved by faith and then all of a sudden you do works. That's not it. Any obedience that we do to the Lord must be done in faith, trusting His Word. Caleb's tenant or, or Caleb's uh, evaluation by the Lord is perfect for us. It transfers to us perfectly. We need to be of another spirit than everybody else who is opposed to what God wants to do, and we need to follow Him fully. It's really that easy. There doesn't need to be a ton of elaboration on it. It all depends on the choices that we're making in light of what we know from God's Word. That's the idea. It will be awarded to qualified saints. You're not in competition with your brothers and sisters in Christ. God has called you to something that He hasn't called anybody else to, and whatever He puts in your hands, you are to be faithful with it. It is based on faithfulness as co-heirs with Christ, which is different from being an heir of God. We're going to look at that in a second. And the inheritance is the opportunity to rule with Christ in the millennium. It is giving us a privileged responsibility when you can hear the words well done, good and faithful servant. Not every believer hears that. Not every believer has lived their lives and stewarded themselves in such a way as to where that will be their evaluation before the Lord. Now, immediately all the type A people have freaked out. Knuckles are white. You've just broke your Grace Bible Church pen, whatever it is, and you're having a hard time. But I promise you, I'm not telling you anything that isn't plainly in the Scriptures. Well, have I done enough? Have I done enough? You know what? If you're looking to Jesus and you're just following Him in your life, that doesn't even become a question anymore. Are you living for Christ? Because here's the interesting thing. 
Did Yahweh supply everything Israel needed to inherit the land? Did He lead them faithfully? Did He leave a bunch of question marks out there? You guys just kind of feel around and see where you're going to go. Is that the way? No. He gave them a leader. He gave them demonstrations of His power and His glory. He did the miraculous in parting a sea and said, go through. And everybody's walking through going, man, how'd this ground get so dry? I mean, the text makes an emphasis on that. The waters recede back like walls. It's like you're walking through something at SeaWorld. But the driest ground, I can't find a drop of water on the floor. He leads them through. He provides them. Lord, we're hungry. Here's bread from heaven. Lord, we want meat. Which sounds like any good red-blooded American, right? Well, here's some quail. We need water. Guess what? I'm going to use a rock as a fountain. Man, does God make himself known? Absolutely. And now they're standing the opportunity says, you know what? You're going to move forward, and it's going to be scary. Get this. It's going to be scary. Trust me. You don't need to fear. I'm on your side. I'm for you. I'm cheering you on. I'm championing you. In fact, I'm paving everything you need. All you got to do is move forward. All you got to do is walk. Well, those guys are kind of scary. I don't think you're telling the truth. Everybody see how that relates to our lives a lot? Some of us have not served the Lord in the capacity He's called us to just because we're scared. Just because we ultimately don't believe He can do it. And so we're settling for an existence that feels like in our Christian lives we are kind of floating around in a wilderness. Why is that? Because what God offered to us in a path of obedience, we smacked His hand away and said, I'm doing just fine where I'm at. No, thank you. Let me show you an example for the church. Everybody turn to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. The Word of God does not waste words. Not one. You've probably read over Romans 8. In fact, if, if, if you're a Christian who's looked to grow at all, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 have been near and dear to your heart. Some people would actually say that it is the heart of the New Testament as far as a growing Christian is concerned. But I want to point out something to you. I don't know if you've missed it, but I want to just lay on it If you've missed it before, maybe the Spirit will give us illumination and we'd love that. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself, which is the Holy Spirit, God, okay? Let's not forget that God is the Holy Spirit. He's not the red-headed stepchild of the Trinity, okay? Let's remember that. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are, we are, are. Everybody see the key word there, are? We are children of God. The Spirit of God testifies with our spirit, we are children of God. Now, with that foundational truth in line, we are God's children, that is a fact. That is the unconditional inheritance that we receive by responding to the gospel in faith. Now watch what he does here. And if children, if we're children, now pause, are we children? That's what verse 16 said emphatically, didn't it? If we're children, now look what it says next. What's it say? Heirs, heirs of God. 
So notice, to be a child of God is to also be an heir of God. You are automatically one if you are the other. Does everybody see that? So you are a child of God, but you're also an heir of God. Now watch how it changes here. Does everybody see that everything that is listed that we have is testified? It's all unconditional. God just wanted to give it to you because he loves you. Everybody see that? Great. Now watch what happens here. It says here, heirs of God and fellow heirs. Some of your translations might say co-heirs. Joint heirs. Very good. In other words, the idea of alongside of. Now, now stop for just a second. Does everybody see how the word heir is inheritance terminology? Right? An heir is somebody that is going to be receiving something because one is passed away or one is passing it along to you. You're the heir of a piece of property. You're the heir uh, of, an, of, of a fortune. Whatever it is, you're an heir of this car. This is something that you receive because of that. Now watch this. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now stop for a second and think about this. You are as righteous as Jesus Christ is in the eyes of God because of all the work that he's done for you. We call that justification, right? But notice here, this is talking about that when Jesus is going to receive an inheritance, you have the opportunities to be locked arm in arm on the same level with him in receiving that inheritance. Now, if that weren't true, it would be blasphemy. Does everybody see that? So notice, fellow heirs with Christ, now here it is. And you always know this because the conditional inheritance always has a contingency stapled to it. Here's what it says. If indeed, and notice this isn't the if like we saw up at the beginning of 17. If we're children, right, that's a fact, then we're heirs of God. It's not that. Notice, if indeed we what? Suffer with him. If indeed we suffer with him, why? So that, here's the reason, we also may be glorified with him. Now notice this isn't talking about the glorification. You pass away or are raptured, it comes time uh, for the judgment seat of Christ and our bodies are made into uh, immortal bodies. We are able to stand in front of the presence of God. It's not talking about that glorification. It's talking about that when Jesus Christ is glorified, when he brings in his kingdom, you will also receive glory with him. It is a co glory that you are sharing with christ because in this life we chose to suffer for his name and to hold fast to his word and to hold fast to the testimony of jesus and we didn't shrink back we stuck with it in fact if you want to do something interesting this week read the book of revelation from beginning to end read the book of revelation and you're going to see something that jesus communicated to john four or five times throughout that book and these are the ones that suffered for the testimony of Jesus, or, or sorry, for the testimony of his, uh, for, for the witness of Jesus Christ and the testimony of his word. I can't remember. Let's turn there. But does everybody see this? Everybody turn to Revelation 20 real quick. We weren't even going to go here. It's okay. Wherever the Spirit leads, we'll go, right? Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. 
This is right after Satan has been laid hold of and cast into the abyss, locked away for a thousand years. The kingdom is being set up. And notice verse 4. Then I saw what? Thrones. Anytime you're dealing with thrones, you are dealing with people who are in ruling and reigning positions. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Notice. They're reigning on thrones, and they have the right to judge. They have authority that Jesus has given to them. Who do you think gave them the authority? Jesus Christ, obviously. It says here, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Why? Because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. In other words, they held so fast to their faith and they held so fast to not want to compromise on the Scripture that they lost their heads over. But what happens to them? These are people who died during the tribulation. But what happens to them? Notice what it says here. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Because they are... Let's, let's, let's do it this way. Because they took up their cross and they followed Jesus, they lost their life in the here and now. They didn't live for themselves but they lost their life now so that they would gain it in the time to come. Does that make sense? For those Christians who live for the here and now and enjoy this life to the full and want to invest everything they have right now, guess what? Jesus is really clear. You lose your life in the life to come. Does that mean you go to hell? No. It means you have nothing to show for living for Christ because you didn't live for Christ. Still saved? Yeah. Still have the unconditional inheritance that's offered of eternal life? Yeah. You have much to show for how you live for Jesus? No. All those that think that they have, even what they think they have will be burned up. Nothing to show for it. They will be saved as yet through fire. Interesting. Now imagine this. This isn't any different. In fact, do this. Turn to Deuteronomy. I'll tell you a story. This might hit home with you, but imagine you got two kids. And you got one kid. His name's Philbert. Right? Because we all want to name our kids Philbert. Turn to Deuteronomy 1. Philbert's a good kid, man. Philbert gets good grades. Always responsible. You can leave and give him some housework. You come back, he's got it done. Philbert doesn't have to be told to take out the trash. Philbert cleans up his room. Philbert went even as far as to prepare your resume for you, right? He's just a good kid all the way around. What's that? He's imaginary. This is a story. And then you got Jeffrey. Jeffrey's been wearing the same socks for a week. Jeffrey woke up this morning with nacho dip in his hair. Jeffrey just broke the lawnmower and just left it, which I'm kind of okay with, but still. Anything that you gave him to do wasn't done, and actually everything looked worse when it was over with. And as they grow up to be adults, no matter how much you tried, no matter how much you pleaded, no matter how many switches you had them cut, This didn't change. 
so now you know you're going to pass. How much inheritance do you think Jeffrey's going to get in your will? 50%? Really? Who said that? Really? Yes, you do. Really? Wow. Well, that's not saying much. <laughs> but think about it. Prodigal son came back. Prodigal son didn't stay out in the far country. Jeffrey might. Or Jeffrey could be addicted to heroin. See what I'm saying? Just because it was only lived out in a certain way when he was in the house doesn't mean that he got more responsible when he was out of the house. If you've seen that your kid has a track record of just wasting and abusing everything, well, let me tell you this. The father would never do that. The father would never leave his inheritance to an irresponsible child. You say, well, that doesn't sound like the God I know in the Bible. I promise you that it is. Does he fully accept the child? Yeah. But is he going to lavish upon that child a privilege to rule in such a way and fashion as his son, Jesus Christ, does in the coming kingdom when glory is the pinnacle of all? He doesn't. It's not somebody who is given those responsibilities. Why? Because they weren't faithful in the little things, therefore they're not faithful in the greater things. Doesn't Jesus teach that? If you're faithful in little things, I will give you more. Yeah. In fact, he teaches us such, such principles as those who are last will be first. And those who will be first, where they end up at? Yeah. See, we know all this. We know all this. Yes. I'm going to tell you guys a secret. The prodigal son has nothing to do with reward and inheritance. That's where we're going wrong. We're trying to bring a, a parable, a story, that Jesus told alongside a biblical truth that has nothing to do with the subject we're talking about. Now we're having a class in September <laughs> called hermeneutics. And it's about proper Bible interpretation. The prodigal son is something all on its own. And in order to understand the prodigal son, you have to read everything that's going on in Luke 15 because you also have the lost sheep. You also have the lost coin. They all go together. So, important to look at. It has nothing to do with this. Now, here's where we find ourselves in our narrative that we're going through. Moses is now standing on the brink of the promised land with the second generation. The kids are getting ready to inherit the land. And I want to show you some things. Chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, verse 8. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land. And if you've been in Deuteronomy class for study school, you know that that word possess means what? Inherit. That word is interchangeable. It's the word Yerusha in Hebrew. And it means to inherit something or it means to possess something. But the idea that's tacked to it is that an heir is the one receiving it. That's the idea. Someone who is an heir to this situation. Notice he says, Go in, possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to them and to their 
descendants. Now do me a favor, turn over to chapter 4. See how this plays out as well. 4.37 Notice the reason why he even makes an inheritance available to be gained. I mean, let's be honest. God could just sit there and go, you know what, Jesus gets it all, y'all just worship Him, and I'm just content with that. He could do that, and none of us could say, you know what, God, that's not right. No, we would say, thank you for letting us be in your presence. But God's grace goes beyond that, inviting us to be more intimate with Him. Look at verse 37. Because He loved your fathers... Therefore, he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. What motivates God to do such things? Love. Love. Because God is a giver, and he wants to give, 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 and he wants to set you up for success to be able to receive, and then he wants to keep on giving. Notice he says on next, driving out from before you nations greater greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Verse 39, Know therefore today, and here's the crux of this whole thing, take it to your heart that the Lord, Yahweh, He is God in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. So you shall keep His statutes and His commandments which I am giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. In other words, set aside in your hearts that God is the only God. Make that statement now. And by holding fast in obedience to what He calls you to do, He will bless you, He will keep you in that land, and it will have a trickle-down effect throughout your entire family. It'll become infectious. In other words, the family, by committing to this method of living life, and that being clearly communicated throughout to the children, now sets up a culture that is perpetuated in the goodness and obedience of God. Anybody want to know what's wrong with America? That's it. Because we looked at because we can sit here and look at what does it look like for God to set up a nation and we can go, yeah, I think I want to do something different. How different would life be? Let's go to six. I'm not even in my main text of the sermon yet. This is right before the Shema. You can read about that in your notes. But chapter six, verse one. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which Yahweh your Elohim has commanded me, this is Moses speaking, to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, to inherit it. In other words, teach and do. Know and do. Learn For the Christian, learn Bible doctrine and then apply it to your life is the idea. It makes a difference. Verse 2. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your Elohim to keep all of his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may go well with you that you may multiply greatly just as Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Does everybody see the importance 
that when God gives a command, and understand the church is not under the law, we have commands of Christ that He's given us. The biggest one is love one another. We just focused on loving one another. This entire church, I mean, even on a day like today, you'd have a hard time seating everybody if we were just about loving one another. How's Jesus love me? Guess what? I need to love everybody like that. Man, I don't know about you, but those are the kind of people I want to be around. Notice the importance of knowing the Word and doing the Word. Why? Because there's so much at stake that God wants to give you. And He has freely set it up to where there is no excuse to not have it except I just didn't want to. I'm slothful. I'm wasteful. And the reason why I bring those things up is because oftentimes I find that that is my attitude, especially when I'm stressed out, tired, and hungry. Hopefully you can relate. I know none of you sin like I do, but still. Sometimes I get that attitude. So here's a question. We're looking at the Old Testament. What can be a charge to us as the church about what it looks like to receive this unconditional or sorry, this conditional inheritance? So turn to Joshua 1. We'll finish up here. Next book. Joshua 1. What we're going to look at is what is known as secondary application. In other words, since I'm not Joshua, since you're not Joshua, since we're not Israel, and that's who this is directly addressed to at this time, the primary application of this does not apply to us in real time, whereas if we were reading the book of Ephesians, it would because that's addressed to the church and we are the church. Does that make sense? So what we have to do is we have to look at principles that will transfer and apply to us And we call that secondary application. That way all Scripture can be applied to us in some way by what we need to know or how we need to think differently or just good tenets for how we need to live life. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, that Yahweh spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. In the same way that God promised it to Moses, He's promising it to Joshua. There is no difference. He says here, verse 4, From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, All the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea, towards the setting of the sun, will be your territory. Now, I don't know if you know this, but if you want to write in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, it is the exact boundaries of geography that were given to Abraham years and years and years ago. Genesis 15, 18 through 21, it's in your notes as well. But think about what he says here. From the wilderness, that's down south where Sinai Peninsula is. Is that right? Everybody know that down there? Everybody get that? Mitch, can we bring up a map? Can you do a map? He's a genius back there, everything he's doing, man. But notice what it says. Here's what you've got. Wilderness, that's south. Lebanon, that's north. Even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, that's east. And it says here, all the land of the Hittites, which is interesting, that's northeast. It's the bottom southern tip of what is Syria. And it says here, as far as the Great Sea. Now, what's the Great Sea over there? Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is the great sea towards the setting of the sun. How do we know that? Sun rises in the, and sets in the, there you go. And the Mediterranean Sea is west of this land. It'll be your territory. Do we have it, Mitch? Okay. Don't let me down. 
Kind of need it now because I'm going to move on. Okay, we'll get there. All right. So notice verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Now stop. Is that true of God now with us? Will God fail you? Will God forsake you? In fact, can anybody find one promise in this Bible right here that God has not kept? We have the greatest record of faithfulness in our hands. There is no reason ever to doubt the character of God. Just as He tells it plainly. There we go. Notice what you have up here. Lebanon's up here. That says Hittite kingdom over there, which is part of it, but it also stretched down here where Nineveh was up there at the top. Kala, there. There's the Euphrates. It runs down this direction. Down here is the wilderness area that we deal with. Mediterranean Sea. He lines it all out perfectly. It's the same promise. It's the same that when God promised it years and years and years ago. It's the same promise He wants to communicate. He wants people to look at Him and go, good grief, I can't believe how faithful you are in this situation. I have no reason to doubt. All apprehension has been removed by the great promises of the grace of God. To not move forward is silly. It's illogical. Everybody see that? Am I the only person that's jazzed about that? I only had two cups of coffee. Okay. Moving on. They were small cups, actually. So notice he says here, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession. And here's what's interesting. This is a different word. It's not Yerusha. It's actually the word Nakal in Hebrew. And it means to take possession, to inquire, to inherit. You will cause these people to inherit this land, is what he's getting at. Of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them to. And don't pass by the word swear. What swear means is I'm holding my word up. I'm upholding this. It's not going to break. I'm not going to bow out on this. I'm not going to flake. It's not going to happen. It says here, verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous. Notice he brings it up again. Be careful. Same consistent language as in Deuteronomy through Moses. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. When did he do that? All of the book of Deuteronomy. That's all it is. All of it. Know the word. Do the word. Be faithful to Yahweh at all costs. He will bless you. He will take care of you. He will love you. He will keep you. You will need nothing. Stick with Him at all costs. Don't turn your back on Him. He says here, Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, Scripture should be what's filling our responses. It should be what we've meditated on. Don't we see David talk about that in Psalm 1? Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the seat of or stands in the way of scoffers or stands in the way of the wicked. Sit sinners, sinners, thank you. Sinners. I should have known that. I am one. Right? Sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Because he does so, he's like a tree planted by the streams of water whose leaf does not wither. Every season, doesn't matter what it is, there's always something there of substance. Plugged in and meditating on the Word. Notice, don't let it depart from your mouth. 
Don't fold it up and put it in the back of your car. Don't let it gather so much dust that you could write damnation with your finger on it if you needed to. Don't let it get to that point. Notice what he says here. I shall not depart, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So that, here's the reason, you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. you got to know what to do it. And notice that God is eliminating excuses. He says here, For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble. Do not fear, is the idea. Or be dismayed. Why? For Yahweh, your Elohim, is with you wherever you go. Joshua, you're getting ready to take a ragtag bunch that has just watched their parents and loved ones die in a wilderness because of a grave stake that the mistake that they have made in doubting the God that freed them from bondage. Be strong. Be courageous. Move forward. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. I think that translates to us clearly. Think about this real quick. And then we'll pray and wrap up. I won't hear all the Bible zipping and all that stuff. Okay. But if we have trusted our eternal salvation with God, I mean, that's essentially what we've done, right? We come to this understanding of, I cannot save myself. And apart from some sort of pardon that I can receive, I'm going to be judged to the lake of fire for eternity because that's exactly what I deserve for what I've done in my life. That's what I deserve. So Jesus steps in and deals with that problem. I have now believed in Jesus, and by believing in Jesus, yeah, it's wonderful that I get eternal life as a gift and I have forgiveness of sins, but what I've essentially done is I've put all my eggs in one basket. Now, anybody that has investments doesn't do that, do they? They diversify your portfolio. How sure is your investment? You see what I'm saying? How trustworthy is your God? Because if we've trusted Him with the final destiny of my eternal existence, that when I close my eyes to this life and I open them in the next one, I am banking on Him telling me the truth and I will see Him face to face. And man, it's going to be all worth it at that moment, I promise you. Then why am I not trusting Him with the small things that cause me doubt every day? I've put the biggest egg that I have in his basket. And all the other little eggs are there. I just keep picking them out like I think it's Easter. Right? All the eggs go there. Why? Because our God has a big basket. It never fails. So don't doubt. Know his word, do his word. Run the race with endurance. This is all language that surrounds this idea of inheritance. Stay faithful to the end. Let's look at one more passage. 2 Timothy 2, and then I'll, I'll, I'll say this and let it just hang on you, and then I'll pray. I will try to pray. No commentary. This is Paul's last letter that we know of. 
And we get an inkling in the letter that Paul knows it's his last letter that he's going to write. And of all the things that the Lord chose through the Holy Spirit to have put in his word, it is written to a young pastor struggling with a bunch of yahoos at a church in Ephesus. He did not have the beautiful, wonderful privilege of pastoring Grace Bible Church in Portage, Wisconsin. Right? Hey, you guys are great. You guys are great. You're easy to fall in love with. You are. I love it. It's great. It's fantastic. Tom's not here. Tom's not here. I was waiting to see if anybody noticed that. So, But everybody look at verse 8. This is, this is like a charge to him. If, if somebody were to write you a last letter before they moved on, it'd have some of the most important things that they wanted to say in it. Some things are like, yeah, if you don't remember anything else, remember this, get this. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I what? Suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Jesus Christ and with it eternal glory. Does everybody see the consistency in language? He's already talking about saved people. He's already talking about people that have already been set aside for this, that have already believed in Jesus and they're considered chosen now. He's talking about the reason why I keep going through the ringer is because I am trying to encourage the church. Press on. Stay faithful. Endure. To the end. Go, go, go. Don't give up. Why? The justification's already a done deal. Give it all in your sanctification. Know Him intimately. Why? Because when this life is over, it's time for glorification. And He wants their glorification to be great. He wants it to be outstanding. He says here, verse 11, it is a trustworthy statement. If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If you believed in Him, you've died to self, and you now are alive in Christ. That is the exchange that takes place. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Reigning is contingent upon endurance of the Christian. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Ha! See? Not saved. Ha ha ha! Anybody know any Christians that deny Jesus? Peter did. In fact, Jesus called him Satan. How does that make you feel? Peter in hell? No. We all have points in our lives where we deny him. In fact, the third time that Peter was identified, he actually cussed the person upside and down saying, I do not know him. Blankety blank, beep, beep, beep. That's how, that's how riled up he was. Completely disassociating himself with the one who just a few moments before said, Lord, I'd go to the death with you. Everybody see how easy that is to deny Jesus. When emotions are high, when your safety is threatened, when persecution is imminent. Those are the times we're talking about. It's coming, people. It's coming. America's not exempt. Just because it's a land of the free and the home of the brave doesn't mean that the Christian has a say. I don't know about you, but I'm not saved unto America. 
I'm thankful to be here, but I'm not saved unto it. I have a king in the kingdom of another place. So notice this. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now watch this. And I can't believe the grace of God in this. If we are faithless, you know what makes me upset about this word right here? Is when it's translated everywhere else in the New Testament, it's translated unbelieving. If we are unbelieving. He's writing to Christians. If we come to a point in our life where we're unbelieving anymore, look what it says. He remains what? He didn't stop being faithful even though we rejected him. We've all had periods of that in our life. Somebody, our loved one dies. We've had periods like that. He remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. Because the whole point of salvation is, is a transaction between the Father and the Son. God hates sin. Sin is the problem. It's got to be dealt with. Jesus steps in and deals decisively with the sin. And when we talk about the idea of atonement and propitiation, the word propitiation means satisfy. Satisfaction has been brought to that situation. Why? Because now the anger of God can pass over because the blood has been applied. Everybody see it? Even if you lose it in your Christian life, guess what? He didn't lose you. Because you weren't saved by your works and you can't be lost again by your works. He keeps you to the uttermost. With a God that gracious, why would we not want to put our heads down in prayer and run the race with endurance? This is exactly what he's calling Israel to do. Why? To show us a picture of what it looks like to enter into a promised, beautiful, spectacular, can't even fathom it inheritance just waiting to give to us let's pray father thank you that you've called us to faithfulness and help us lord by your word to be electrified knowing that it's worth it whatever hardships we experience here whatever we're having to do without whatever menial circumstances we find ourselves in god it is worth it for the sake of christ jesus our lord he didn't even have a place to live, no place to lay his head. Father, you provide. You provide. You provide. You are faithful. And some of us might be thinking right now, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief in this. You have called this church to great things. You have called each one of us to great things. Great things that you have in store. Great things that have nothing to do with this world but everything to do with our faithfulness to Your Word in this world. Father, convince our hearts of that. Soften them to the great and glorious riches. You want to open the doors wide and You want to drown us in Your grace. Father, let us not easily forget what we've seen in the Word today. Prayed in Jesus' name.